There's a gray horse standing still As a soldier climbs in the saddle for one last ride As the rain pours off his hat You can see the shadows of the past written in his eyes Now the cannons are silent His friends are all gone Gotta put it all behind him If he ever wants to find his way Radio here, the last rebel on the road at Republic Broadcasting Network. And I would implore each of you, should you be able, to go to republicbroadcasting.org and hit that donate button if at all possible. Let's keep free speech alive in America. Because, as you're going to learn here in just a couple of minutes, there was the president who was ranked number one by CNN of presidents all times in America who basically destroyed the First Amendment during his administration. And that is the right for free speech. And RBN is standing in the battle folks, to present and to bring to you free speech. You may not agree with all of it. I don't. But that is irrelevant. It is free speech. So let's do what we can to keep it going, folks. And with that being said, I would like to now to start you off with some quotes. Now, I'm they're not verbatim quotes, but the idea should... Uh, be transmitted without any problem. And first, I would like to start with Marcus Tullius Cicero, who said that a people who are ignorant of their own history shall remain forever children. Wow, folks, look around you. Is not the majority of the people you see every day acting like children? They have not been able to get themselves out of the concrete stage of psychological development. They still think as, you know, mid-schoolers or junior high students. The proof is unassailable. And then let's jump to George Santayana, and I'm bastardizing this one a bit. But Santayana said, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are destined to repeat its mistakes. And that just makes sense. And then, thirdly, I would like to hit you with a little scripture. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And they have rejected knowledge. Boy, if that was... If that quote, if that scripture does not absolutely nail what is happening in this country with cognitive disconnect and cognitive dissonance and just the absolute refusal 
to look at the facts of history. Well, today we're going to jump in, as the old rebel madman likes to do. We're going to jump into that period of history, misnamed the Civil War, but accurately named by Stonewall Jackson when he said it was our second war for independence. Now, if you're going to murder a whole bunch of people, including probably half a million blacks, and blame it on somebody else, you need some moral high ground. You absolutely have to have it if you're going to get people to accept it. So you tell people it's okay if we killed all of these people because we were trying to abolish slavery. And that makes about as much sense as, well, you know, I really won't go into that. But let's look at the 1860 election, which was fraudulent. And I believe that uh, somewhere in a dictionary somewhere that the phrase election and fraudulent should be synonymous. Because I have failed yet to find one election in American history that was not fraudulent. So what does that tell us? And our, you know, those uh, anti-federalists tried to warn us about this. They said you cannot leave the counting of the votes in the hands of the government. You can't do that because if you do... You know, you're not going to, you're never going to actually control anything. And then I forgot the wonderful Marxist who said, I care not who votes. I only care about those who count the votes. And boy, have we learned that in, yes, exactly, Mr. Stalin. Thank you, producer. That was exactly on point. So there we are with this with this vote thing. And uh, there is documented evidence, and I'm not really going to go into a lot of that, but I'm going to show you that. And my point is, and what I'm positing here, is that once that Abraham Lincoln, if you look at this, it's really kind of funny because the Republican convention was scheduled for New York. William Seward was the odds-on favorite to be the nominee of the Republican Party for president. And then the uh, convention gets transferred to Chicago, which is, you know, kind of the headquarters for the Communist Clubs of America at the time. That and Wisconsin, not far away. And so then we have... Mr. Lincoln, and the first day after the speeches are made and what have you, they're ready for a vote, and the ballots disappear. So they have to wait till they get some more printed ballots. So in the meantime, Lincoln's Marxist friends are able to run around making deals (coughs) with almost everyone to come up with Lincoln as the nominee. So, and and he becomes the nominee. He wins the election in 1860, again a fraudulent election. Some 
300,000 illegal, uh, you know, we would call them, we wouldn't call them illegal today because the government would get mad at us, but immigrants were allowed to vote in elections in uh, northern states like uh, Illinois and uh, Wisconsin and other states. They were allowed to vote if they would promise that they would become citizens within a required number of years. And ironically, they most all vote for Lincoln. And it is my posit here that once Lincoln was elected, which was pre-planned, once he is put into that position, he is tasked with creating a war with the South. Now, his communications, once he is nominated, his communications with leaders in the military will prove my point if you will take the time to research and look at those communications he was setting up for war once he was nominated of course you know it has to be we have to have the moral high ground and the republican party came into existence with the moral high ground of being abolitionist Oh, yes, this is their moral high ground. But the logical question would be that if they were if they were that strong advocates of freeing the slaves, why, once that the southern states seceded, why did the Congress, which was completely dominated at that time, by northerners and northern interest, why did they not abolish slavery or send out an amendment abolishing slavery? If that was their if that was their purpose, it would only make sense that they do that. But as I'm going to get into, they absolutely could not do that. Because if they did, they faced more opposition than they could even imagine. So instead, they offer the Corwin Amendment, which Lincoln mentions in his first inaugural address and admits that he is in favor of it. He says, an amendment which I have not seen, which was a blatant lie because he was probably involved in writing the amendment. And it was called the Corwin Amendment, which would have made slavery legal in perpetuity outside of the control of Congress. Now, it was passed by both houses of the legislature and sent to the states for ratification and two states had already ratified it when Fort Sumter was fired upon but if you go back and look as I mentioned before in these communications in the military with the, that Lincoln had had if you look at these you very quickly understand that he was doing everything within his power to provoke the South into some kind of action which would justify war. You know, he sent ships to Pensacola, he sent ships to Savannah, he sent ships to Charleston. All of this is documented. It's in the National Archives. But people don't want to believe it because they have been taught a plethora of lies down at the communist gulag we call public school. And, of course, they have read, you know, a book here, a book there by some Marxist professor with letters after his name. But there is a purpose for that. 
There is absolutely a purpose, and that is called mind control. Make sure you control the masses to where they do not look in any way whatsoever at the truth of the situation, and they only look at the emotional aspects. Oh, slavery. Isn't slavery terrible? No, it's not. Actually, it is, but it wasn't to the government because slavery had been constitutional for 72 years when Lincoln took office. And not only that, but just three years prior, the United States Supreme Court in Dred Scott v. Sanford had said that slavery was constitutional. So all of you people out there who get all orgasmic about finding secession documents which list slavery, people, the South was standing on the Constitution. And the Constitution guaranteed them the right to own slaves. Immoral? Heck yes. No doubt. But did they own? You know, it's legal. It's legal to do so. And I made the analogy with uh, Blackbird 9, my buddy, yesterday, that what if we looked at it in a different perspective? What if we said today that, okay, yeah, all of you folks have the Second Amendment, which says you have the right to keep and bear arms, and it says that it shall not be infringed. But what if the government decides that they're going to invade the homes and the property of everyone who owns a gun and take it from them because that's the right moral thing to do because guns kill people. Would you be all right with that? We'll draw the analogy with slavery. The government says, okay, you can do this, but if you do it, I'll kill you and take your property and rape your wife and your children and dig up graves to find out if you've got something hidden out there. That is the part. But once Lincoln wins this election, he's got a problem. And he knows it. Because the border states did not support him at all. I mean, he the most percentage of votes he got, and this Missouri was not a border state, but it was still a slave state. He got 10% of the vote there. He got a thousand votes in Kentucky out of, gosh, how many, 90-some thousand? He got a thousand votes. And then in Maryland, which is extremely strategic because it surrounds, helps surround Washington, D.C., in Maryland, he gets 2,200 votes out of 92,441 cast. These Marxists enter office in 1861 on March the 4th, knowing that they are surrounded by states that don't like them. And they also know that the South, in 10 states, Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot. So much for that consent of the governed crap that they teach at the communist gulag from the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't exist. So, after Lincoln had been able to induce or 
you know, poke and prod until the South fired on Fort Sumter and no one was killed. And all of them were peacefully allowed to leave. And ironically, Major Anderson, who was the commander at Fort Sumter, was a slave owner from Kentucky. That irony just really, that's weird. But anyway, Abraham Lincoln, immediately after the firing on Fort Sumter in April of 1861, ordered... First, now stop and think about this. We all think about the South invading, I mean, I'm sorry, about Lincoln invading the South. But Lincoln invaded states that hadn't seceded before he ever invaded the South. And immediately, pardon me, after, immediately after the firing on Fort Sumter in April of 1861, Lincoln ordered the invasion of Maryland a Union state that probably had no intention of seceding to the Confederacy. Yes, it was a slave state, but Maryland was loyal. But, as I said before, despite its small size, it was strategically critical because it bordered New York, um, bordered Washington, D.C. on two different fronts. That was an issue. And then, of course, you've got Maryland on the other side. And I'm, I'm sorry, you've got Virginia on the other side, and Virginia has seceded. So Washington, D.C. is in a critical position. So Lincoln orders an invasion of a state that had not seceded before he ever orders an invasion of the South. Now, a large U.S. Army elements moved from Boston to Baltimore. Martial law was instituted in Maryland. Civil liberties were destroyed. Citizens and politicians who opposed Lincoln and his actions were immediately incarcerated in undisclosed places from their family. Does this sound like a communist move? It was. The president instituted one-party rule. In Maryland. Oh, okay. Now, some modern historians will claim that Maryland intended to join the South, but we will never know. But Lincoln moved quickly to make sure it stayed in the Union. When Lincoln, as I said before, when Lincoln was elected president, he had, you know, the support of 2,200 votes out of 92,441. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, upon his election, you know, five deep South states seceded, fully aware that Lincoln and his Republican Party were committed to eradicating their culture and their peculiar institution, though he said in his inaugural address on March the 4th that he was not. Yeah, but ever the consummate politician, Lincoln denies that threat, as I said in his inaugural address. He deceptively said, and I quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so and have no inclination to do so. The lawful right was true because it was constitution. The no inclination to do so was a blatant lie. 
Of course, Lincoln was good at lying. That's why they called him Honest Abe. That's why you call the guy that is six foot three and weighs 300 pounds tiny. Well, the Republican Party evasively stated in its platform, and now this is critical. Listen to this. In the Republican Party platform of 1860, resolved that the maintenance inviolate of the rights of the states and especially the right of each state to order and control its own domestic institutions according to its own judgment exclusively is essential to that balance of power on which the perfection and the endurance of our political fabric depend. And we denounce the lawless invasion by armed force of the soil of any state or territory, no matter what pretext, as among the gravest of crimes, unquote. Well, that's what they said in their party platform, and then they did exactly the opposite. Go look at the Republican Party platform of today, and you will find out that they don't have one candidate anywhere in the country who is following their own platform. Their platform is a piece of deception. But with these guarantees, even after the surrender at Fort Sumter, the border states remain faithful to the Union. Kentucky is a great example. And to really get into Kentucky is, you know, quite the study. And I, I've done that. And it's quite interesting because uh, the governor, McGuffin, who was a Democrat, he called two different meetings of the legislature to vote on secession. But he didn't get it. So Kentucky just said, look, we would like to remain neutral. And Lincoln said, oh, that's fine. You can remain neutral all you want to. And then he sent in federal troops. Uh, okay, that sounds good, doesn't it? Well, even with those guarantees from the Republican Party, which I just read, and after the surrender at Fort Sumter, the border states remained faithful again to the Union. That is until Lincoln called for 75,000 troops to crush the insurrection. These states were appalled at this aggression against their fellow Americans, as rightfully they should have been. This generated a second wave of secession where uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Virginia left the Union. Now, people don't want to talk about those four states that voted to stay that uh, that were uh, slave states that voted to stay in the Union until Lincoln ordered troops. So how can you say the war was about slavery? But here was the thing they knew they couldn't do. They could not bring up an amendment to abolish slavery because immediately they would have had Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland joined the Confederacy. That was a death knell. They couldn't allow it to happen. Lincoln believed that Maryland was going to be the next to secede after those four states that I mentioned. He called for federal troops to invade on the pretext that they had to go through Maryland to reach the capital to prevent a Confederate assault on Washington. Maryland's governor, Thomas Hicks, the legislature, and the majority of the citizens of Maryland clearly indicated that there was no desire to cut their ties with the United States. They wanted to remain in the Union. Maryland was more like a northern state. Slavery only existed in a few counties, 
which were agricultural. Non-slave farming and industrialization dominated the state of Maryland. Baltimore, one of America's largest cities at that time, was a major manufacturing center closely linked in commerce to the fellow northern states. So it made no sense that they would, but Lincoln had to make sure that they didn't secede. That was critical for him. So um, as we look at these, and, you know, Lincoln's inauguration was viewed as a declaration of war in the Deep South. Violent abolitionists who hated the South and had sent John Brown in to kill people and to incite as a slave insurrection, which they hoped to do, which Lincoln also hoped to do with the Emancipation Proclamation. And if we get into a thorough study of Kentucky, we will find that when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, Kentucky was going to secede because they were not about to – they were a slave state. But one of the things I forgot to tell you about is when the Union Army moves into Kentucky, what do they do? They seize slaves. Now, Kentucky was critical. Kentucky still is the state with the most navigable waterways of any state in this union. And therefore, they were critical to the northern cause. Kentucky could not be allowed to secede, could not be allowed to become a union, I mean a, a confederate entity, even though some 28,000, 25 to 28,000 Kentuckians joined the Confederacy, including John C. Breckinridge. Even though they joined, they could, he could not allow Kentucky to go that way. So they needed to build a lot of forts and defensive positions on those waterways in Kentucky. And so when Union, when the Union troops came into Kentucky, the first thing they did was seize slaves and took those slaves and put them to work building fortifications on the rivers, the various places where they needed to defend. They thought they would have to defend, and they used slave labor to do it. So it's okay if the government uses slaves. It's just you people in the South, you couldn't use slaves. So quite a, quite a, a bit of distraction that was going on. But uh, violent abolitionists, as I said, who hated the South and had sent people like John Brown into the South to create slave insurrections. Long before the initial clash at Fort Sumter, Lincoln stealthily ordered Army units recall from outlying posts and brought them to main military centers. That's what I told you. This war was planned before Lincoln was elected. Warships from the Mediterranean fleet were ordered home. Washington, D.C. became a major military training center. Lincoln promised a peaceful evacuation of Fort Sumter but tried to reinforce it to provoke the South into a reaction, which he got. Frantic activity was observed in dockyards and armories throughout the northern states. Arsenals were busy day and night manufacturing weapons. Well, if you didn't think you were going to war, why would you be doing that? 
Yeah, looks like we got some music coming up, folks. Be back on the other side. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. Antelope Hill Publishing is America's leading publisher of dissident books, bringing you a wide variety of new translations and original works on every subject, from the funding behind the transgender movement to firsthand memoirs of World War II previously inaccessible to English-speaking audiences. We publish books that mainstream publishers won't touch, full of information that challenges the political status quo. Whether you count yourself as a political dissident, student of history, connoisseur of philosophy, or enthusiast of exciting and thought-provoking fiction, you owe it to yourself to check out our catalog. With exclusive offerings like The Transgender Industrial Complex, Solzhenitsyn and the Right, The Open Society Playbook, Opioids for the Masses, and many more, there's something for everyone, and new titles are added every month. Check out our catalog today at antelopehillpublishing.com and use code RBNREADERS2023 for 10% off your order. That's RBNREADERS2023 at antelopehillpublishing.com. Consider this. Dead people see only what they want to see. And frankly, most of us are still dead. Let me give you the lessons of gold and five easy lessons. Number one, don't buy it because you need to make money. You buy gold because you need to protect the money you already have. Don't ever look at the price as a barrier. Look at it as an incentive. Number three, don't buy its paper pretenders. We talked about that a lot. Buy gold. Buy the real thing in the form of coins and bullion. Fourth, don't fall prey to glitzy television or Facebook ads. Do your due diligence instead. And that's what I try to provide you with and have for 26 and a half years on the air and 30 years in this profession. Fifth, don't allow naysayers to divert your interest. Allow yourself the right to protect your interests as you see fit. Jeff Bennett here. One of the ways you can do that is to contact Kettle Moraine Limited. Contact me by calling or texting me at 602-799-8214. 602-799-8214. You can also email me at kettlemoraineltd at cox.net. Let me help you protect your wealth and your family today. Once again, call or text us at 602 799 8214 or visit our website sierra madre precious metals.com be glad to help you out be glad to answer your questions that's what we're here for no pressure just good hard common sense the decision then becomes up to you Any day, and if you plan on getting out alive, let's be on our way. 
Our tattered gray was torn between if we should run or fight. But our southern pride swelled up inside as we dug in for the night. Then I heard a rider calling, they're coming down the road. And the fiery flash of 20 Well, welcome back, everyone, to... Rebel Madman Radio here at Republic Broadcasting Network on the 19th day of August in the year of 2023. And uh, before the break, I need to reiterate this because I think this is so critical. People need to understand this. Before Lincoln was inaugurated, he had been... He had won the election, but he hadn't been inaugurated yet, and yet the records in the National Archives show the following. He ordered Army units recalled from outlying posts, brought them to the central military centers, and then he ordered warships, U.S. warships from the Mediterranean fleet to order to home ports, Washington, D.C. became a major military training center. Lincoln promised a peaceful evacuation of Fort Sumter, but then tried to reinforce it. And frantic activity is noted in the National Archives in dockyards and armories throughout the North. Arsenals were busy day and night, working 24-hour shifts, manufacturing weapons, troop transport vessels, with amphibious landing craft prepared for immediate action. Now, people, again, all of this occurred before there were any for, any shots fired at Fort Sumter. Lincoln was preparing for war before Fort Sumter. Now, I know you're not taught this down at the Communist Gulag called, uh, you know, the uh, public fool system. But that is documented evidence. It is there for those who care to know the truth. But on the 27th of November in 1860, a memorial signed by ex-Governor Pratt of Maryland and other prominent citizens was presented to the incoming new governor, Thomas Hicks, requesting him to summon the legislature to a special session. In view of what was happening throughout the country, Hicks replied in his first public statement as governor, contending that such a session would only increase the excitement which was all too prevalent in Maryland already. The people were getting fired up in Maryland. Many of those who advocated that special session insisted that they did not want Maryland to secede but wished, to, wished rather to remain as mediators between the North and the South. When the governor of Mississippi telegraphed Hicks announcing the withdrawal of the state from the Union, Hicks said, Mississippi has seceded and gone to the devil. Does that sound like Hicks was going to secede? Not to me. As a further indication of Hicks's pro-Union stance on the 25th of January in 1861, he wrote to General Winfield Scott asking if 2,000 rifles could be had from the United States government to meet the emergency if it should arise. Winfield Scott approved the request. And then we had... Fort Sumter on April the 12th, 1861. 
So three days later, April 15th, Lincoln calls for 75,000 volunteers to quell the insurrection. This call-up spread concern throughout the state of Maryland, throughout the state of Kentucky and Missouri, but even among Republicans and the people who had said they were union people, the cherished hope of neutrality in the struggle, or at least the simple adherence to the union, was rendered impossible when Maryland was expected to submit four regiments of infantry to the war effort. What Lincoln did with this request for troops was put all of these states in a position they could either vote to secede or they could join the Union. He made sure that that was the only choices they had. The position that that, uh, Governor Hicks in Maryland wanted to hold as one of neutrality was absolutely untenable. He had only two courses open to him either to break away from the Union on the grounds that sufficient, sufficient provocation was offered by this order or the coercion to provide troops, or to absolutely forget his concerns in regard to coercion and support Lincoln's administration. Governor Hicks had previously declared himself in favor of an unconditional Union party which would totally support Lincoln's policies. But when he realized how serious was would be the consequences that would be in a war, he hesitated to do that. The hesitation was by no means particular only to Governor Hicks. For throughout the country, and especially in the border slave states, especially Missouri and, of course, uh, Missouri was not a border, but uh, uh, Kentucky and others, Many of the most pronounced adherents of the Union shrank back when called upon to advocate coercion as a method of, you know, forcing the people of the South to do what they were told. Governor Hicks foresaw the gruesome consequences that would happen if both sides, that he knew that Maryland would be a center for warfare. And it would devastate his cities, his agriculture, and devastate the people of Maryland. So despite tremendous agitation, Hicks remained neutral. He issued a proclamation that assured the people of Maryland that it would remain neutral throughout this conflict. Upon upon learning of Kentucky's military quota, Governor McGoffin said he would furnish no troops for the wicked purpose of sub- for subduing her sister southern states, going back to Kentucky. Indecision led Kentucky to be invaded by both Confederate and Union armies. Governor Lecter of Virginia wrote to Lincoln, and I quote, This is not within the purview of the Constitution. Virginia then seceded. Governor Ellis of North Carolina wrote to Lincoln, and I quote, I can be of no party to this wicked violation of the laws of our country. North Carolina then seceded. Governor Claiborne Jackson of Missouri said, and I quote, Your requisition, in my judgment, is illegal, unconstitutional, and revolutionary, and its objective inhumane and diabolical, unquote. 
Jackson pledged his loyalty to the United States, but his state was still overrun by the U.S. Army out of St. Louis by German immigrants. Imagine that. Neutrality for Governor Hicks also meant that when South Carolina's Governor Gist wrote Hicks about concerted action on behalf of the Confederacy, Hicks replied that he was against any measure looking towards secession. Maryland is saying, we're not going to secede. We just want to be neutral. We just want to be left alone. Hicks added that he prayed, and I quote, that my right arm might rot from its socket if I ever raised it against my southern brethren. So he's really stuck on the horns of a dilemma. In a letter just after the first Deep South states withdrew from the United States, Hicks wrote to a Prince George County resident, and I quote, If the Union must be dissolved, let's let it be done calmly, deliberately, and after full reflection on the part of the United South. After allowing a reasonable time for action on the part of the northern states, if they shall neglect or refuse to observe the plain requirements of the Constitution, the right to secede, then in my judgment, we shall be fully warranted in demanding a division of this country, unquote. Yet, Governor Hicks's comments did not infer the disunion involved Maryland in any way. During his inaugural speech, Governor Hicks said, and I quote, Maryland is devoted to the Union and to all of her other states. Maryland never listened to the suggestion of disunion from the southern states and has refused to join with the misguided people of the northern states in their assault on slavery, unquote. But excitement in Baltimore especially was growing so strong that on the day following Lincoln's call for troops, a telegram was sent to Governor Hicks urging him to come to Washington where he had an interview personally with Abraham Lincoln. General Winfield Scott and Simon Cameron, who at that time was Secretary of War. Hicks presented to them the intense opposition of the people of Maryland to any attempt to secure by force the return of the southern states to the Union. Hicks was assured that the four regiments required of Maryland would not be taken out of his state and it would be kept there strictly for the defense of Washington. But after his return to Baltimore, he had misgivings as to the conclusions reached by his interview with these people of the administration. He telegrammed Lincoln for a definitive statement, and the reply was exactly the same as the interview. As I said before, Abraham Lincoln's policy of provoking war was evident long before his inauguration. On several occasions, he said that secession was illegal, giving himself the irrationale to commence military action. Yet all of the original 13 states had stipulated, as a condition of their signing of the United States Constitution, that this was a voluntary union and that they could withdraw at any time if their sovereignty was violated. Now, three states stated that specifically 
in their ratification agreements, and that being Rhode Island, New York, and Virginia. They put those stipulations specific in their ratification agreements, which made them part of the contract or compact. And as I said, in ratifying the Constitution, Virginia added this provision, and I quote, that the powers granted under the Constitution, being derived from the people of the United States, may be resumed by them whenever the same shall be perverted to the injury, to their injury or their oppression, and that every power not granted thereby remains with her. This unequivocally meant that the right to withdraw from the United States rested with Virginia if they felt like that their sovereignty had been imperiled or questioned. And as I said, New York said, and I quote, that the power of government may be resumed by the people whenever it shall be necessary to their happiness. That's all, just happiness, nothing else. That was accepted in their ratification, so it became part of the, uh, part of the contract. Yet Abraham Lincoln defied the ah, constitutional truth and said, and I quote, No state can lawfully get out of the union. Resolutions and ordinances to that effect are legally void. Secession is the essence of anarchy. Well, you know, he got something right for the first time. But as Governor Hicks filled out the requisition form, to deliver Maryland's four regiments to the United States Army, he learned that Baltimore streets were filled with angry citizens demonstrating against Maryland's men ever being used to attack the South. He notified Secretary of War Simon Cameron, and I quote from the official document, it would be prudent to decline responding affirmatively to your request for troops, unquote. Let me read that again. It would be prudent to decline responding affirmatively to the requisition. In other words, he's saying, we're not going to provide troops to invade the southern states. Now, upon that being transmitted to Secretary of War Simon Cameron, northern soldiers prepared for war against Maryland, not the South, against Maryland. On the 18th of April, the Massachusetts 6th Regiment boarded a 35-car train in Boston, which would take them to Baltimore. Now, okay, just before leaving, General Benjamin Butler, who later got the name General Beast Butler in New Orleans addressed the 6th Regiment and this is what he said folks again documented history soldiers our commander in chief President Abraham Lincoln has assigned us to lead the advance guard of freedom let us say to the good people of the commonwealth of Massachusetts that we will not turn our backs until we show there is but one thought in the North, the union of the states now and forever, unquote. Now, Baltimore's mayor 
George Brown, telegraphed Lincoln that the Massachusetts 6th should not enter the city of Baltimore under any circumstances. Governor, I mean, I'm sorry, Mayor Brown activated the militia to repel what he referred to as a federal invasion. Lincoln totally disregarded Mayor Brown's warning and would eventually arrest him and put him, have him arrested and put him in prison. Now, just to look at some official source documents, John Dennis was a private in the Massachusetts 6th. He later described the journey down to Baltimore, and I will quote from that. We arrived in New York City, and it looked like the whole population had come out to welcome us. All along the route between New Jersey, the enthusiasm kept up. The people of Philadelphia were not lacking in kind words and deeds towards us. News came by telegraph that the secessionists in Baltimore were preparing to resist our march through their city. When the train left Philadelphia on its way to Baltimore, Colonel James, who was the commander of the Massachusetts 6, requested a pilot engine to run ahead of the train as a precaution against track sabotage. When about up to 15 miles from Baltimore, ammunition was issued to the soldiers, and they were given the orders to load. Colonel Jones passed through the train and gave orders that when we marched through the city, we should not cast our eyes right or left, but to keep straight on unless fired upon by the mob that was likely awaiting us. Now, the chaplain of that regiment, again from original source documents, folks, his name was John Hansen, and he wrote, At every station, communications was had with the railroad officials in Baltimore, and assurance was received that there would be no trouble unless the regiment provoked it. Orders were therefore given to the band to confine their music to tunes not likely to give offense, especially avoiding the popular song, Dixie. Unquote. Trains going through Baltimore on their way to Washington had to make a change since steam locomotives were not allowed to go through that city. Arriving in Baltimore from Philadelphia, a train had to terminate in the President Street station on the east side of the city. The steam locomotive was disconnected from the train and horses then pulled the train a few cars at a time on a special railroad track across the city to the Camden station. There... Another steam locomotive was connected to the reassembled train, then on to Washington. Friday, April the 19th at 10 a.m., the Massachusetts 6th arrived in Baltimore. As the train pulled into the President Street Station, the streets were filled with enraged, thousands of enraged citizens. But this time, those enraged citizens were armed. The horses pulled the cars. Baltimore Mayor George Brown wrote of what he experienced. And in this, again, folks, original source documents. Troops began to arrive at Camden Station. There was a great deal of excitement. A large and angry crowd assembled. At this time, an alarm was given that a mob was about to tear up the rails of the railroad to Washington. I ordered my men to protect the track. I was about to leave, supposing all the danger to be over, when the news was brought to me that some of the Massachusetts men were left at the President Street station and that the mob was tearing up the track on Pratt Street. Demonstrations were made on one or two of the cars, 
but nothing like an attack was made until the seventh car started. It was attacked by clubs, paving stones, and other missiles. The soldiers were now anxious to fire on the assailants, but their officers forbade it until they could be, should be attacked by firearms. One of the two of the soldiers was wounded by paving stones and bricks. At length, one man was shot. He asked to fire in return. Orders were then given to lie on the bottom of the car and load their muskets and rising to fire from the windows at will. The car was three times thrown off the track when the wheels encountered obstacles placed on the tracks. The car finally reached the main body of the regiment, unquote. Again, folks, original source documents that you did not know existed and that this government will do everything and this academic system in this country will do everything in the world to keep you from knowing existed. But where are you going to find out about them? Republic Broadcasting Network. Make sure you keep this avenue open of free speech and your right to know <clears throat> pardon me, what is actually in your own national archives and in your Library of Congress. But several railroad cars carrying the remainder of the Massachusetts Sixth were still at the President Street stations. They were ordered to march across the city because the tracks were so obstructed with debris which had been placed there by the citizens of Baltimore. The citizens of Baltimore did not want federal troops in their city. Lincoln knew this. He sent them anyway. Because the governor had said, I'm not going to... I'm not going to provide troops to invade our sister states. Didn't have a damn thing to do with slavery. So, you know, it is reported that the mob actually reached as many as 10,000 people. There were 220 soldiers. Pardon me. The crowd pressed on the flanks and rears of the columns of soldiers. At one of the bridges on Pratt Street, a barricade with a cannon had been placed. The soldiers scaled the barricade. Had they halted there, there would have been annihilated. They would have been annihilated. As the detachment passed along Pratt Street, gunfire rained down from the windows and the doorways. They marched under fire for 1.5 miles, many soldiers being killed or wounded. The people of the city of Baltimore did not want the federal government in their town. According to the Tenth Amendment, did they have the right to say no to the federal government? Well, if we, it depends on who we listen to today. They will say that the states have a right to say no. Did, Bal- did uh, Baltimore or Maryland have a right to say no to the federal government in 1861? No. So when the Massachusetts Six finally reached Washington, Abraham Lincoln met them and made another false statement, and I will quote that again from the National Archives. Thank God you have come, for if you had not, Washington would have been in the hands of the rebels before tomorrow morning, unquote. 
Yet at this time, there was no indication of an offensive plan by the Confederacy anywhere. So, as usual, Honest Abe lied through his teeth. But the effect was reached because northern newspapers screamed for revenge. The Boston Courier editorialized, push on to Baltimore and lay it in ashes, unquote. More federal troops vowing retribution approached from Philadelphia. Maryland Governor Hicks and Mayor Brown sent this desperate telegram to Lincoln, and I quote, a collision between the citizens and northern troops has taken place in Baltimore, and the excitement is fearful. Send no more troops here. Let's end this now. President Lincoln sent back this wonderfully ambiguous reply, and I quote, General Scott said this morning, march them around Baltimore and not through it. By this, a collision of the people will be avoided unless they go out of their way to seek it. Now, Baltimore Mayor Brown understood the double entendre meaning of the message. Ah, here comes the music. We'll see you on the other side, folks. Thanks for tuning in to Republic Broadcasting and Rebel Madman Radio. Have you been looking for a trusted long-term storable food company? We have a solution for you. Simply Clean Foods is dedicated to providing the best quality food you can buy next to fresh from a farmer's market. Our line of resealable fruits, vegetables, and meats are suitable for everyday use, and you won't have to worry about throwing away valuable groceries ever again. Our food is completely GMO-free, and our stringent quality controls, plus testing for heavy metals, makes us unique in the storable foods market. Simply Clean Foods' primary focus is to bring clean food to people all around the world and change the way we look at freeze-dried food in our daily cooking. When you purchase from Simply Clean Foods, not only will you be receiving high-quality food, but you will also be supporting veterans in need across the country and those who are affected by natural disasters. Go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on Long-Term Food Storage in the rotating sponsors' banners to support RBN. Simply Clean Foods. Do it today. You can't handle the truth. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit republicbroadcasting.org today because you can handle the truth. 